Last week was an intro, if you will, into understanding holiness. So to, to restate, holiness is not what you do to earn righteousness or right standing with God. Holiness is the work and reality that come from your solidified eternal identity as the righteousness of God. So holiness, holiness in the Hebrew meaning set apart, happens because you are not who you once were. You become set apart because your identity has changed. So you're other than what you were. So at one point you weren't set apart. Now you are because your identity has been transformed into something other than. So when First Peter says, be holy as I am holy, and he's quoting the Old Testament, when he writes that, be holy as I am holy, what he's saying is, is that I am set apart, I am other than, therefore you be set apart and other than. Y'all with me? Three people. Okay. So holiness, meaning set apart, happens because you are not who you once were. Once your righteousness was as filthy rags. Now your rags have been traded for a spotless robe. Okay? So when Paul says your righteousness or my righteousness is like filthy rags, that's not a present reality for the believer. On your own, your righteousness is like filthy rags, but he traded your rags for his robe. Okay? Man, y'all look tired today. Y'all good? <laughs> All right. I'm going to have fun for me. If y'all want to join me, great. If not, I'll have fun. When you were a beggar, when you were a beggar, you did what was best for you. Now that you're a king or queen, you have the authority to determine what's best for you and others. Holiness is how we bring a totally new yet totally natural culture into the current world. So we as believers become a seed so set apart that it grows and invites others into a more excellent way of life in intimacy with the one every soul longs for, Yahweh. So today, today, I want to focus on unveiling the truth of what we have died to. That's what today is all about. Today, I feel like the Lord wants to unveil the truth of what we have or should have, I should say, died to. So sin and death, as revealed through the law, is what every believer should have died to. Okay? I believe if we understand what we have or should have died to, it would allow us to finally and completely throw off our old nature so we could inherit the fullness of the new one. If we could understand what we've died to, it would allow us to step into the reality or identity to inherit the new one, new wine, new wineskin, okay? So that's the thing about the salvation, salvation message. It is drenched in the grace and mercy that is more than enough to give you and I access like in the beginning again. Y'all tracking with me? I know this is, this is a lot, but just hold, hold with me, okay? Salvation, the thing about the salvation message is it is drenched 
in the grace and mercy that is more than enough to give you and I access like in the beginning again. All we must do to receive it is kill that which poisoned us, sin and death, and receive. The only thing you have to do to receive life is let go of the thing that was killing you. So the gospel is both the easiest and most difficult thing we will ever encounter. Easy because you and I are totally incapable of earning it, so it's given to us as a gift we couldn't possibly lose. But it's difficult because it will require us to lose the delusion of safety we've built up in our life of sin. True salvation requires immense trust because though totally delusional and fake, most have spent years or decades convincing themselves that they actually have control. Salvation requires immense trust because even though it's totally fake, totally fake, we have spent years convincing ourselves that we actually have control. Because of this, most never truly become born again. They just become, as we like to say, half-breeds, alive in speech, yet dead in spirit. The thing hindering almost all churches, leaders, and Christians today is not a lack of a yes to Jesus, because most consider themselves Christians. In the South, I said this last week, if you walk down Main Street and ask anybody at random, are you a Christian? They'll say, yeah, anyone. Everyone in the South is Christians, right? So it's not a lack of yes, because most people have given Jesus a yes, even if it's by title alone. It's a lack of a yes married with a complete and final death to every piece of who you were before. So, so in salvation, listen to this right here. In salvation, everything dies. In salvation, everything dies. Think about the cross. In salvation, everything dies. He then resurrects the restored pieces of who you are and makes you original design, leaving sin's chains in the grave. Okay, so we as believers are set apart because we are dead to what the world is alive to and alive to what the world is dead to. Man, okay, hear, hear this, hear this. We as believers are set apart, holiness, because we are dead to what the world is alive to, sin, and alive to what the world is dead to, Jesus. Very, I mean, like, this is, this is super basic stuff, okay? 
because of this, because of this, holiness is not what we do from righteousness, excuse me, not only what we do from righteousness, it becomes the instrument used to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. So I've got a really cool analogy right here. And it's probably going to get me in some trouble too. So y'all, y'all just, here we go. So if you're following the cravings of the world, you're alive to what the earth is alive to. If, you, if you're still following the cravings of the world, that by definition, you're still alive to what the world is alive to. If that's true, which it is, that means you haven't died to what the earth is alive to. And if that's true, which it is, you haven't been born again. If you're still alive to what the earth is alive to, you haven't been born again in a death and resurrection into being set apart from the world. I think a lot of times we try to make things complicated. Just do the math. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? Not by its label. So I can label an apple tree, an orange tree, all day long with an LED sign and big speakers saying this is an orange tree, but the reality of the tree is it's an apple tree. No matter how many labels you throw on the tree, it is what it is, right? So in Christianity, it has nothing to do, we've made Christianity labels. Are you a Christian? Yes. No, 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 no. I'm not asking if you identify with the label of Christian because everybody else does. If I'm asking you're a Christian or if you're a Christian, I'm asking if you have died. You know what I mean? Have you died? Well, yeah, I've died. Awesome, awesome. So, so one thing you desire, and this shall you seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, are you seeking first the kingdom of God? You, you, know, you, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Here we go, here we go. I love philosophy, so this is a great way of thinking about it. <clears throat> Actually, let me say this last sentence real quick. Jesus did not die to put lipstick on a corpse. He died to make you fully alive. You can tweet that. Here's the great irony in all this. Everyone agrees that life is better than death, Right? I'll make this in a way that Veda can, Veda can get this. How many of you believe life is better than death? Is it better for you to be alive than dead? Would you rather be dead? Uh, no, of course not. I would hope not. <laughs> okay? All right. So 100%, if you're watching online, I'm just going to assume that you, you can think through this. Life is better than death. Okay. So, sin can only produce death. That's all it's capable of producing. Righteousness or light or salvation can only produce life. It's all it can produce. Righteousness, the only thing impossible for righteousness is for it to create death. Cannot do it. So Jesus offers us good, which is life, and all he asks is that we let go of bad death. I'll give you an example. If I told you, I'll give you $1 million cash, and all I ask in return is you give me your credit card, you would be crazy to say no, right? 
Does every literally does everybody agree on this? Be real careful. Right? If I said I'm going to give you a million dollars cash right now, all I ask for is your credit card. You'd be crazy to say no. Because credit cards are delusional. They're they're lies. Here's what I mean. They make you think you have money that you don't have. <laughs> are y'all are y'all like are y'all with me? If all right, my so let me give you an example. My credit card has a five thousand dollar limit. My credit card has a five thousand dollar limit. I don't got five thousand dollars right now in my bank account, in my checking account. Right? So, so I could go spend the $5,000 on that credit card, but that's not my money. Guess who's going to be paying that bad boy off with interest? Me, right? So, so that is a lie. A credit card is a lie. You don't have the money on the credit card. You're borrowing the money so that they can profit off of your interest, but it's not your money. I'm not, I'm not advocating for or not for using credit cards, but I'm trying to make a connection. You're right. So, they make you think you have money, you don't. So for you to say no to true hard cash because you don't want to let go of fake cash is crazy. It, I mean, it would be insane for you to deny a $1 million stack of true cash because you feel more comfortable with the fake stuff on a credit card. Because sin can only produce death Anything in your old identity claiming to be alive is fake. It can only produce death. So sin can't produce life. Jesus offers us the real thing, yet most refuse it because they've convinced themselves or bought into the lie that the fake thing, sin, is real, and the real thing, Jesus and his kingdom, are fake. Think, think, about, think about this, that those who were knit together in their, in their mother's womb by God himself and breathed into, alive and every breath they breathe. Do you know Yahweh, Ellington mentioned this in worship, Yahweh is breath. So, so we, we pronounce God's name, the Hebrew name Yahweh, but that's not what they used to pronounce it as. The, the most scholars agree on that Yahweh is void of vowels, and it's the sound of breath. So creatures, creatures who only exist because he knit them together, and he breathed into them, and worship with every breath they take, have the audacity to say, I don't know if there's a God. What do you mean? You don't exist unless there's a God. Are you kidding me? But this is what we've done is we've, we've bought into the lie that me being in control of my life is me being alive. And it's actually me being dead with a label on me that says I am alive. But we've gotten more comfortable with death than we have with life. And so when he comes and offers life, but he asks us to trade death so that we could receive life unstained, most people say no. And at best, most people say, I'll take life in this hand, but I'm going to keep the old right here in this hand just in case it gets a little frisky. 
And the, this whole thing with holiness, I, I wonder why the Lord released us to start speaking about this last week, and this week I finally understood. It's because what's coming on the other side of however long the current season is, what's coming on the other side requires you to be fully alive to receive it. Let me say it like this. He said he would pour out new wine into new wineskins. I've taught on this, Lord, I feel like every month at least. When Jesus talks about the old wineskin and the new wineskin, he's not talking about two different wineskins. He's talking about one, one that has become dried out. And if you traced it back into ancient days, they would take an old wineskin. It would be identified as old because it had become dry. Right? Okay. Some of y'all saying right. Y'all don't even know. You're just, you know, tracking with me. That's, that's good. All right. So, an old wineskin is labeled as old, not because of its age, but because it has dried up. So they would take that wineskin, they would not throw it in the garbage and get a new one. Okay, that's what we think. They would take that wineskin and baptize it in oil that was heated up by fire, baptize it in oil, and massage the oil into the wineskin until it got its pliability back. At which time they would take the freshly baptized wineskin and then begin to pour new wine into it. Why? Because new wine stretches and moves as it ages. So for him to pour something that's going to stretch you into you while you are dry would destroy you, which is exactly what has happened to most believers today, is that they were in an environment, but because they refused to be baptized in the oil that would give them their pliability back, as he began to pour out Great awakenings and revivals and moves of the Spirit on groups of people. All the dried out ones didn't receive it and rejoice. They received it and tore apart. So you start hearing, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then you got a group of people who have become dried out that say, the Lord, none of, none of that stuff for today. The Holy Spirit stuff, the gifts of the Spirit, that, none of that's for today. What it is is a dry wineskin that's become ripped as new wine pours out. How do you have Christians, all Christians, same body, one group of people tasting the fullness of what the Lord wants to give and another group of people denying the fullness even exists of what the Lord wants to give? How is that possible? It's because one group is a new wineskin baptized in oil and another group is an old dried out wineskin that refuses to be baptized in oil. But the only difference is is you relinquishing control to the one who would baptize you in the oil. As long as I've got control, he can't baptize me because I'm calling the shots. And as long as I'm calling the shots and he can't baptize me, I'm in the process of drying out and dying. But the minute I let go of control, he can finally take me, pour out the old wine, begin to baptize me in the fire and oil of the anointing that then I can come out with my pliability intact and receive what I was actually designed to receive, which is on earth as it is in heaven. You don't have to die 
you get to die spiritually. We say this. Well, brother, you know you, you have to die. No, no, no. This isn't something that I, that I dread. But that, that's what we, this is something that, that we should rejoice in. I get to lay down death. What? I just, took, I, literally, I just took a poll, and every single person raised their hand and said, life is better than death. And yet, he offers us the opportunity to lay down death and exchange it for eternal life, and most people dread it. You might not be able to go into the job that you want, but he's going to give you a job that's way better than the one you want. And most people will choose the one I want because at least I've got control in it. I'm telling take my control. I don't want control. As long as I've, I've tried the control thing, and it got me in a mess. I don't know about y'all. I don't know about your story. Maybe you're perfect. But when I was in control, things did not go the way I thought they would. So how we view this, how we view what we've died to, will make all the difference in how we view what we're alive to. So, so this week, I'm going to, I don't normally do series type things. Uh, they're great for people. I just don't like planning way out because the Lord usually changes stuff anyway. Uh, but, but today we're going to do Romans 7 and next week we're going to do Romans 8. But, but Paul goes into a lot of depth on the old in Romans 7 before he talks about, which I believe may be the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, Romans 8, uh, into what we are alive to. And so I'm going to read Romans 7. Y'all hang with me, and, uh, and we're going some places. What time is it? 1130. Perfect. All right. Romans 7, verse 1. I'll take a sip of this, and then we'll, uh, we'll go right in. All right. I write to you. It's Paul, of course. I write to you, dear brothers and sisters, who are familiar with the law. Don't you know that when a person dies, it ends his obligation to the law? For example, a married couple is bound by the law to remain together until separated by death. But when one spouse dies the other is released from the law of the marriage. So then if a wife is joined to another man while still married, she commits adultery. But if her husband dies, she is obviously free from the marriage contract and may marry another man without being charged with adultery. I always used to speed through those first three verses, and he stopped me in my tracks this week. This is huge. This is huge. Uh, I'm going to go on, but just let me explain what Paul's trying to say right here, coming out of 6, going into 7. Uh, Paul uses the analogy of a married couple in covenant to show how one is released from one covenant to enter into the new. So the Old Testament, like I said earlier, is translated Old Covenant, the New Testament, New Covenant. A wife, which... The church is called the bride, okay? So a wife isn't legally released from her first covenant, so let's say sin and death, unless it dies. A wife, you and I, aren't legally released from our first covenant, which is sin and death, unless it dies. 
at that time, she, the wife, or you and I, she is released to marry another. So Jesus. So, so many, so many try to marry the latter before the former has died. To do that is called adultery. Leviticus 2.10 says, anyone who commits adultery must be put to death. That's what Leviticus 20.10 is. The Hebraic idea, which would be the Leviticus one, going into the New Testament. The Hebraic or Hebrew idea of adultery is, is twofold. It's a married person entering into a covenant with someone else that they're not married to and worshiping other gods. It's those two ideas. Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 16, among other places, call Israel an adulterous wife, right? Why? Because they've started worshiping other gods while still in covenant with Yahweh. The worst thing you could do or I could do as it relates to covenant is being two at once. Okay, here's how Revelation 3, 15 and 16 says this. He says, I wish you were hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, this is the NLT, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. I started thinking about this this week. Think about what he's saying. This, this is literally what Jesus is speaking through John in Revelation here. Okay. So he's saying, I'd rather you be hot or cold. To be hot is, is fully in this thing. To be cold is fully out of this thing. To be lukewarm means you're kind of in this thing, right? So, so what he says literally is, I'd rather you be all out than half in. Do you get, do y'all get this? I mean, what, what have we done today? Not today, literally, but like in 2020, what have we done? I'd rather you, I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, which is hot and cold mixed, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. He'd rather you be ice cold than half warm. I mean, y'all, this is, okay. I don't know about you guys. This has been really messing with me this week. I, I, I used to wonder why we haven't had another great awakening or revivals all over the place. Because it's not that people don't go to church. I guess right now people aren't going to church. But it's not that people don't go to church. I think it's because we're lukewarm. Let me say it like this. I think he's doing, man, y'all just hang with me. I'm going to take a big leap right here. I think he's doing more through cold than he is through lukewarm right now. Well, brother, hey, listen. I wish, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit. It makes me want to vomit. Okay? Things that make me want to vomit are not good things. Okay? Getting shots make me want to vomit. 
watching those shows, ER, or what's that show where uh, it used to dramatize like ER crazy stories? Was it called? Uh, it was called, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Or there was another older one too. I forget what it was called. But um, anyway, watching those shows, Pimple Popper, y'all know that show? Makes me want to puke. Some people, Jordan, <laughs> love that show. <laughs> But I'm, she's she's watching my, like and I'm over here like, you know, right? So it's, it takes some some crazy stuff for him to say it makes me want to vomit, right? And he doesn't say he he doesn't say, uh, um, man, <laughs> I was I was going la- label some stuff I'm not going to. He doesn't say Democrats want to make me vomit, right? He doesn't say. I don't know, certain races make me want to vomit. He doesn't say certain identities make me want to vomit. He says, you pretending to be hot when you're actually cold, that makes me want to vomit. We can deal with the other stuff because at least they have an identity. But if you're lukewarm, you don't know who you are and nobody else knows who you are. Matthew 6, 24 Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You are incapable of serving two masters. So the only legal way to be in covenant with Jesus through salvation is for what you were in covenant with before to die. The Greek word right there for dies is from the word meaning obsolete. So the Greek word right there for dying, okay, when he talks about the spouse that dies, that Greek word is translated becoming obsolete. The word obsolete means not in use anymore, having been replaced by something newer. Let me read uh, Martin Luther, uh, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther who was the father of the Reformation um, about 500 years ago. We have the type of church we have today because of Martin Luther, the 99 Theses, uh, all that stuff. He has a commentary on Romans, and I just want to read a a paragraph out of this commentary on this Romans 7, 1 through 3 um, thing that Paul's talking about, okay? Martin Luther says, The apostle here confirms and describes more fully what he has said in the preceding chapter about the dying of the old man and the vivification of the new man. I love that word. I'm a a geek, right? About the dying of the old man and the vivification of the new man. Okay, to this end, he uses the analogy of the temporal or human law. Above all, he wishes to make clear what he says in 4.15, which is, the law works wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. He speaks of the law as it refers to man's heart and will and not merely his external works. To understand the apostle's positions, excuse me, propositions, the reader must grasp his basic premise. And this is what he says right here. This is so good. Sin and wrath come from the law. Hence, no one dies to the law who does not die to sin. And whoever dies to sin dies also to the law. 
As soon as a person is free from sin, he also is free from the servitude of the law. So then when sin has dominion over us, then also the law has dominion over us and vice versa. However, unless first the inward dying to sin takes place, sin remains and has dominion, and with it the law which rules through sin. Therefore, listen to what he says. Now this is over 500 years ago when he writes this. Therefore, those act with amazing folly who merely imitate the works of the saints as do the monks. Those act with amazing folly those who merely imitate the works of the saints. Lukewarm. They are foolish, for they desire merely to do the same works without concerning themselves about their spirit. For this reason, we must ask God for divine grace so that we may become new in spirit, willing and doing all good works with a joyous, ready heart and a free manly mind and not moved by the servile fear or by some childish desire. But this alone, the Holy Spirit works in us. The apostle here, talking about the woman and the man, emphasizes the thought that there is no freedom from the law unless death takes place. Just so no one is free from the law of the letter unless he is buried with Christ by baptism into death, as he said in the preceding chapter. He, and he, so he goes through and talks about the reality 500 years ago and the reality today lines up that the monks, who are those who have devoted their whole lives to being of the Lord, you know, that the, y'all know like monks that live all together and do their thing every single day and they're cut off from society, all that stuff. The monks, he says in his time, the ones that he's around, all desire to do what appears to look like the work of the saints without actually ever going through a spiritual death. All right, so the law, the law defines sin, thus revealing our sin, thus, as Paul says, and we're about to read, awakening the sin desire within us, which caused us to bear fruit of death. Therefore, the new law of covenantal relationship reveals righteous identity, not our sin, unless revealing hindrances pushes us closer to our righteousness, which awakens the desire to be holy within us, which causes us to bear spiritual fruit. All right, let me read it. Let me read it. All right, starting in verse four. So my dear brothers and sisters, the same principle applies to your relationship with God, for you died to your first husband, the law by being co-crucified with the body of the Messiah. So you are now free to marry another, the one who was raised from the dead, so that you may now bear spiritual fruit for God. When we were merely living our natural lives, the law through defining sin actually awakened sinful desires within us, which resulted in bearing the fruit of death. 
But now that we have been fully released from the power of the law, we are dead to what once controlled us, and our lives are no longer motivated by the obsolete way of following the written code, so that now we may serve God by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is holiness. Verse 7, I'm going to just finish it out. Let me get a drink first. Coffee makes you more dehydrated, so I'm actually doing worse every time I take a drink. Okay, I could preach on that one day. So, verse 7, what shall we say about all this? Am I suggesting that the law is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that gave us clear definition of sin. For example, when the law said, do not covet, it became the catalyst to see how wrong it was for me to crave what belongs to someone else. Somebody needs to salah on that for a little while. It was through God's commandment that sin was awakened in me and built its base of operation within me to stir up every kind of wrong desire. For in the absence of the law, sin hides dormant. I once lived without a clear understanding of the law, but when I heard God's commandments, sin sprang to life and brought with it a death sentence. So the commandment that was intended to bring life brought me death instead. Sin, by means of the commandment, built its base of operation within me to overpower me and put me to death. So then... So then, we have to conclude that the problem is not the law itself, for the law is holy, and its commandments are correct and for our good. Verse 13, so did something meant to be good become death to me? Certainly not. It, listen to this verse. It was not the law, but sin unmasked. That produced my spiritual death. The sacred commandment merely uncovered the evil of sin so it could be seen for what it is. For we know that the law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm. But I am a human being made of flesh and trafficked as a slave under sin's authority. I'm a mystery to myself. This is going to sound really familiar if you've been in church at all. I'm a mystery to myself for I want to do what is right, but end up doing what my moral instincts condemn. I do, I want to do what's right, but I end up doing wrong. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still, excuse me, yeah, my conscience still confirms the excellence of the law. And now I realize it is no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder, intruder of sin in my humanity. Almost done. For I know that nothing good lives within my flesh of my fallen humanity. The longings to do what is right are within me, but willpower is not enough to accomplish it. Willpower is not enough to accomplish it. Accomplish what? Doing what is right. So the whole mindset of we can earn salvation or earn righteousness by holiness is impossible. You can't be good enough to be saved. 
but you can receive salvation, which makes you good enough. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. So if my behavior contradicts my desires to do good, I must conclude that it's not my true identity doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin hindering me from being who I really am. Man, that's good. Through my experience of this principle, I discover that even when I want to do good, evil is ready to sabotage me. Truly, deep within my true identity, I love to do what pleases God. But I discern another power operating in my humanity, waging war against my moral principles of my conscience and bringing me into captivity as a prisoner of the law, of sin. This un couple more verses. This unwelcome intruder in my humanity. What an agonizing situation I am in. So this whole chapter is kind of depressing, right? I don't do what I really want to do. I sin all the time, and I don't want to sin all the time. The law sprang sin up to me and caused me to realize that I covet people, and I started wanting things that other people had, etc. Okay? So he's about to give it that last, like, knockout blow, though. Y'all ready? He says, what an agonizing situation I am in. So who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? Verse 25, I give all my thanks to God for his mighty power has finally provided a way through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. So if left to myself, the flesh is aligned with the law of sin. But now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's righteous principles. Another way you could say that, another translation is God's law. So he says, I cannot possibly accomplish the law. But then he says this, but now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's law. Okay. So kids, kids don't know their actions are wrong or sinful until shown to them that they are wrong and sinful. So they are innocent until a law unveils how bad some of their actions are. Y'all with me? Okay. Then, once that is unveiled, to commit those actions is not out of accident from innocence. It's on purpose from an evil desire. So using the covet, for, for example. Before you knew coveting was wrong, you really made an accident out of innocence. So you saw a pair, let me just get real weird. You saw a pair of shoes somebody has that you want. Before you got to the point in your life where you knew that's coveting and that's wrong, that was completely innocent. So you were technically doing wrong, but being completely oblivious to the fact that you were doing wrong. So then, once that is revealed to you that coveting is against the law of God, 
then for you to covet what somebody else has is not out of an accident from innocence. It's on purpose, knowing full well that's not what I'm designed to be doing. So what the law did was it entered into the story of humanity because humans were living in sin but had no law to show them what their sin actually was. You with me? So it wasn't that they were living perfect before the law. It was that they were living innocent while still committing sin before the law. The law came into the picture to show us the poverty of who we are if left all by ourselves, which Adam and Eve, the original sin, started in its root with the idea we can do this without God. That's, that's where it all started. I taught on this a few weeks ago, that the only thing, because they were made in the image of God, Adam and Eve, made in the exact image and likeness of God. So the only thing that differentiated Adam and Eve and God was that Adam and Eve were completely dependent on God. That's the only thing, completely dependent. So the devil comes in and says, you know, if you, if you take a bite of that fruit, you'll know good and evil. You won't need God. He just doesn't want you to know what he knows. So they take a bite of the fruit, not because they want to know good and evil. They have no concept of evil. Nobody's ever done evil. Right? It's not that. It's because deep down inside, something sprang up that said, this is our opportunity. Maybe we don't need him as much as we think. It was independence. Independence. You can disagree me all day long. That's totally cool. We can still rock and roll with each other. But I believe independence is the root of the very first sin, and I believe independence is the root of every sin. Thinking we got this. Making Christianity a democracy. And we got a say in this. You don't have a say in this. The only say you have and I have in this is yes. And then after that, we get the joy of enjoying the ride that he lays before us. Man, okay. Some people got mad when I said that. I can, I can feel it. We, want a, we need a say in this. No, you don't. We tried that. Tower of Babel. We tried it. Y'all, let's build us a tower and make a name for ourselves. Do you know what I'm saying? All throughout human history. The flood happens. Why? Because the world has come cor become corrupt. Why has the world become corrupt? Because the world was left to man to decide everything that happened because in the garden they made the decision, we can do this without him. So I believe the Lord says, you believe you can do it without me? Go right ahead. I, I really believe that's what he's saying to a lot of us right now. To America. You think you can do this without me? Go right ahead. We'll see. I feel like I feel like I'm back in my older days, my Pentecostal days. So the law, the law, is written on everyone's heart. That's Romans two fifteen. It's written on everyone's heart. Every human being has what we call a conscience. Every human has a conscience. What that is, is the law of God written on our hearts, convicting and before salvation, condemning us of sin. So an unbeliever that has no idea of right and wrong knows when they do wrong. Because the law of God is written on every heart. You can't, and that's why I say, y'all, we, we've got to, as Christians, step up. We got truth on our side. 
So if anybody has the answers to anything going on in the world, it should be us, the only holders of truth. Any un no unbeliever holds truth. Man, y'all, okay. So the, remember the original design, okay? It was total dependence on Yahweh in the garden. So Adam and Eve attempt to rearrange the order and become independent. Then the law comes in to show us that we are totally incapable of actually being good on our own. We were designed for dependence on God, yet within that dependence to be independent for the sake of communion. So if we were designed for dependence, we were also designed with an incapability to be independent as it relates to God. So the magnitude of the law is twofold. It's to show us how sinful we are and incapable of being good on our own. Secondly, to show us how incredibly massive the gift of salvation through faith by grace is. Twofold. It's to show us on our own how off we get it so that we can see the magnitude of what salvation did within us. It didn't just make us better. It made us brand new original design. I mean, we, we I mean, most people, we, when we do the repeated prayer hand raising thing, we, what we're saying is, is we have totally discounted what, what happens at salvation. You repeat a prayer and you start trying to live good and brother, you'll make it to heaven. No, 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 no. I'm designed and you're designed to be born again to bring the heavenly culture into this dimension so that this dimension can thrive into on earth as it is in heaven so that when we make it to heaven or he comes back and brings heaven with him fully, we will be in an operational state of original design. But that was the entire intention of Jesus Christ coming to the earth when he makes the announcement, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, what is he saying? He's saying what you caused to be totally separate from you is now back with you. That's literally what Jesus is saying. The whole thing was about bringing a kingdom here, not getting you out of here into a kingdom. And I teach this every week because we've got to get this fixed in our thinking. So when you pass by somebody that you feel a, a, an inkling of a pull from the Holy Spirit that you need to reach out to or you need to talk to or maybe you just need to smile to, when you feel that, if your mindset is, one day I'm escaping this bad place, you won't do it. Who cares? But if your mindset is, I'm here to bring a kingdom with me, you can't not do it. I'm speaking to myself too. I do this. But, but if we're going to leverage righteousness into holiness, that has to begin to seep into everything we put our hands on. So when you're working, you're not working as somebody waiting to escape. You're working as somebody who is bringing something with them. Think of the chasm that this represents. Before salvation, it's impossible for us to be good. After salvation, it's impossible for us to be anything but good. Matt, go ahead and come up here. I think everybody's getting tired, and uh, we got to wake everybody up. That uh, volume knob, the big one, is all the way down. If you just want to bump it up to like halfway, right there, boom. Or less, you can take it. <coughs> One, one, 
before salvation, is a consequence of independence. The other, salvation, is a consequence of total dependence. When Paul's speaking on behalf of himself in Romans 7, he's actually representing himself as an Israelite. He's representing the Israelites. That before Jesus tried to earn right standing with God by works to fulfill the requirements of the law, he longed to do good, Paul, longed to do good, but couldn't do good because of the intruder of sin. I'm on my last page. And he says, who has the power to rescue me from sin and death? And this is what I want to point out, and this is what we're going to end on. He's not asking, if you haven't paid attention to any of this stuff, I want you to pay attention to this. Paul, when he says, who has the power, even in all of Romans 7, he is not talking about dying to the actual law what Paul is talking about dying from or being rescued from is the sin and death that was produced from living solely under the law. You with me? Okay, so God through Jesus, God through Jesus allowed the situation for all believers to be that now because of being found in the Messiah, our renewed minds are fixed on and submitted to God's law. Okay? So before we needed rescuing from the sin and death that the law itself produced, now we are rescued into salvation that the fulfilled law through Christ produces. It was never an issue of the works of the law themselves. In other words, none of this, none of this is one covenant involved the law and the other abolished the law. That's not what this is. We like to do that. A lot of people will say, I don't read the Old Testament because that was before Jesus. Anybody else ever heard that? Most people will not read the Old Testament because it's like, who cares? That was an old thing. No, 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 no. That wasn't an old thing. That is a fulfilled thing that we still need to be aware of. Who is Jesus? You have a really hard time knowing the fullness of who Jesus is without knowing the entirety of what happened leading up to Jesus. The whole Bible, Old Testament especially, is pointing to the Messiah. We need to know the law so we know the massive gravity of what happened when Christ came, the Word made flesh that dwelt among us and then went to a cross and died as the Word. The word of God made flesh and tabernacled among us was put on a tree. So when they're talking about in the New Testament, giving him the reward of his suffering, what they're saying is, is if holiness could be put on a cross for something that was not holy, the least I could do is take holiness and allow it to transform me into something that is holy as he is holy. Who am I to say that I can still hold pieces of my old life when he took his entire life that was perfect that he did not need to let go of and hang it on a tree? Who am I? I'm somebody who is independent that thinks I've got control of this and I don't. The ones who had control of it said crucify him. 
Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. That's what happens when we get in control. We crucify him all over again. Lord, I, I don't want to, Lord, I, man, I just can't make this decision. I can't tithe. I got bills coming up. You know what we're doing when we do that? Let me just help you. Is we're nailing him back to the tree. Because he did not die for apathetic Christians. He died at the hands of apathetic Christians. He did not. He died for people who would finally have the ability to die to what held them in the bonds of sin and death and that we could become fully alive image bearers to then subdue and multiply and be fruitful all again. He wanted his walk in the cool of the day back. And the only way he could do that was to take what we did, hanging on a cross, get up three days later and say, now follow me and take up your cross too. I mean, th this, is, this is basic, basic stuff, but we've got to recover the basic stuff. I, f I mean, I feel this. I feel this. It was simply, it wasn't an issue of abolishing the law or keeping the law. It was simply an issue of incapability and capability to do and fulfill the works of the law by way of love. What does Galatians 5.14 say? The whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. As I'm reading through this, I realize how much we have really, really gotten this off. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is Paul, same Paul. The entire law, the entire Old Testament the entire thing can be summed up with this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. First John, God is love. Works-based, works-based, earnest Christianity is still a manifestation of independence. I can earn it. We must fight against earning and fight for having earned. I wanna end with this. You died to the old and are now alive. And here's the key. You're now alive in Christ, in Christ. That means you are only legally alive in Christ. Before the cross and resurrection, we tried to earn right standing. Now that we are in Christ, we can move beyond earning for it has been earned and into leveraging the fulfilled law into establishing a kingdom in love. What are kingdoms, what are kingdoms founded on? Law. What's the, the mask? You, brother, you can't make me wear a mask. Why are people saying that? The law. I mean, that's, there are, people's arguments for or for not wearing a mask are all rooted in the law. I don't care if you wear a mask or not. My point is, is that every kingdom on earth in history is rooted in law. You can't have a kingdom without law. God's law is this. 
love. Love. What if the Declaration of Independence or, or, or any, any of our articles or anything like that, what if, what if they all were combined into one page and on the top in old English writing, it had one line, love your neighbor as yourself, period. You want, you want to know what kind of country we would live in? It would be amazing. We wouldn't have Facebook, <laughs> wouldn't have social media, wouldn't have the media, right? Love, love your neighbor as yourself. Every, every, every single crime committed in America is a result of failing to love your neighbor as yourself. All of them. Want to fix race? Love your neighbor as yourself. We must retrain our thinking and I believe really polish up our theology. If you are only alive in Christ, we must die to everything outside of Christ. Anything not found within Christ, we must die to. Anything outside of Christ is dead, for he is life. And I'm going to end with this. I told you I was on the last page. I thought I was, but this I've only got a couple of things on this page. Uh, listen to this. Listen to this. What time is it? I feel like I've been going later and later every week, but that's all right. I'm tricking y'all. By the end of the year, we'll be straight into one o'clock. Um, we'll just have to start providing lunch. Um, listen to this. John 1, 3 and 4 says this. Through his, Jesus, creative inspiration, this living expression or word made all things. For nothing has existed apart from him. Life came into being because of him, for he is life, and his life is light for all humanity. Jesus is life. Nothing has existed apart from him. Nothing can exist apart from him. That means anything that is not in him is by definition of scripture, dead because the only thing that is alive is the thing that is in him. You with me? So we've got to get that in Christ means total dependence in Christ. So you are seen as perfect. Why? Because you've been enfolded into the one that is perfect, right? You're seen as righteousness. Why? Because you've been enfolded into the one who is complete and total righteousness. If you remove yourself from in Christ, that can no longer be said of you. That's called you being lost. You're only saved if you've been enfolded into Christ. That means your actions, every single thing that you do should be from a mindset of being, as, as the message translation says, being moved by the impulses of the Spirit and the unforced rhythms of grace. And every single thing that you do, it's Holy Spirit, what do you want to do in this moment? And then you do it. And you begin doing that so much that it becomes natural. That every decision you make, everything you do with your money, everything you do with your time, everything you do with your family, everything that you do with your job, all becomes 
all becomes, I was, I was going to say projects. They all become seeds. I think that's a better word. They all become seeds for Jesus to enter in whatever situation that is and begin rebuilding his kingdom brick by brick, conversation by conversation, encounter by encounter, moment by moment, until the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord begins to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens happens with you and I in every little seemingly insignificant moment, making it a significant moment. Next week, we're going to see the full color. We're going to go to Romans 8. The full color of what being in Christ means. But we would be missing a major piece that is a foundational piece to understanding Romans 8 if we missed unmasking the beauty of what we should be dead to. In Matthew 6, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't do that. So I feel like the Lord wants to bring us back to a foundational. In fact, I believe he wants to start feeding us some milk again. I think a lot of people, if, if you stop giving a baby milk too soon, it, it hinders their growth for years down the road. If you start trying to give babies solid food before they're ready for solid food, it could harm them. It could possibly kill them. There are certain ages that you have to hit before you can give babies certain solid food because they're not ready for it yet. I think what a lot of believers have done is because of urgency, because of a society that we live in that says things have to happen like this, we have skipped over the milk stage and jumped right into the meat and we wonder why we're trying to bite meat but we don't have teeth to chew it up with. And I think he wants to bring us all the way back, me included, to the milk stage and he wants to teach us what happened at the cross we'll get to the on earth as it is in heaven thing what happened on the cross when I said it is finished what was finished because it looks like there wasn't a lot finished in you I mean if if you're if you're gonna call yourself a Christian then you have the legal responsibility to look at yourself and say have I actually died course I'm talking spiritually right but what what is still alive in me do I still talk about people like they're junk because if so I haven't died do I look at other people as less than me if so I haven't died do do I struggle man do I struggle with tithing if so I haven't died do I struggle with being consistent with the house of the Lord if so I haven't died. Do I put the Lord way down here on the priority list? And if I got time for him, or if I got time for church, if I got time for my family, or if I got time for other people, I'll get to it. But I'm busy and I got my life. If that has happened, you have not died. 
And I would be a horrible shepherd for us to just keep rocking and rolling and me continue to encourage people who are treading real shallow to the point of almost being out of the water and not say, hello, it's time to wake up. We got to wake up. You might be in some relationships that need to die. You might be in some relationships that are influencing you. I don't know who I'm speaking to. That are influencing you to be somebody that you are not. It's time for them to die. You are who he says you are, and no one else has any authority to label you as anything except for the one who designed you in the first place. So if people have called you anything less than a king or a queen in the earth, they lied and have no authority to tell you that. You are a king, you are a queen, and you deserve the best. You don't deserve average, you don't deserve better, you don't deserve okay, you deserve the best that the world has to offer because you're actually the authority in the earth in the first place. They don't take kings and queens, McDonald's, maybe they do. I love McDonald's, but you know what they take them? They take them the finest and rarest of things. Why? Because they have the authority to receive that. Stop settling for a Happy Meal. I, I'm, pro, I'm prophetically speaking right now. Some of y'all need to receive this. I feel this all over me. We need to stop settling for poor. We need, and I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about theology and how we live our lives. We need to stop settling for average. We need to start living extravagant. Paul said the more excellent way, 1 Corinthians 13, is love. If I speak with tongues of angels, know all wisdom there is to know, and have so much faith, I can speak to a mountain, tell it to jump into the sea, and it obeys me, but I don't love, I am nothing. We, so we're searching after a move of God and a revival and another great awakening. The next great awakening, the final great awakening is waiting on the other side of something that nobody's searching after, love. We keep praying for fire and I want fire, but I want fire that comes through love. I want the fire that burns in his eyes. What kind of love is it? What kind of love is it that when Jesus takes the woman who is caught in sexual sin, they're about ready to stone her. They're about ready to stone her. And Jesus steps in and says, you without sin, go right ahead. And one after one, they drop them. And I've, ta I've taught this before. They drop them and they drop them and they drop them. Do you know the one person that was standing there that had every legal right out of the Old Testament to stone her to death and it still be righteous? Jesus. What did he say? You without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. He was without sin. What did he do? Did he stone her? No, no, no. He said, where's your, where's your accusers? They all left, and I'm certainly not going to accuse you. Go and sin no more. It was love. He, she saw something in the eyes of the Word made flesh that she didn't see in the eyes of all the religious leaders. They all knew everything he knew. 
but there was something in his eyes that said, I don't see you as lower than me or scum or worthless. I see you as who you are, which is a daughter of the king. So get up and sin no more. The woman with the issue of blood, none of the religious leaders wanted to touch her. She spent everything she had on trying to get better. She climbs through the crowd, touches the hem of his garment, instantly gets healed. And if you read the story, the first thing he says to her is, daughter. What? If you read through the Old Testament, that woman would have been kicked out of any religious circle in town because she was unclean. She had an issue of blood. So nobody wanted to get within 10 feet of her. They had all told her how sinful she was, how awful she was, how worthless she was. And then she finds the son of God who not only has so much authentic power flowing through him that a touch cleanses her. Not only that, but he looks at her and does not say what every other religious leader said, which is scum. He looks at her and says, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Daughter, this, this is what's going to happen in the earth. This is what the, if you look at the news, that's what the earth is crying out for. Right now, young people, young people all across America right now are not crying out. I believe they're, I believe they're not crying out for things to be a certain way. I believe that's part of it. I believe the root of it is they're wanting someone to look at them and say, son, daughter, we need dads, we need moms, we need people who aren't afraid to live this thing out, who aren't afraid to stand up and speak for truth because we are the only ones that have truth. So go ahead and bow your heads. I know the live stream, if you're watching, it's about to cut off in four minutes. I wanna ask you these four questions. Number one, what do you still entertain today? that is a part of your old life. Number two, what is still alive in you that is not in Christ? Number three, I wanna ask this, if you need salvation, I know we don't do this a lot because um, we usually try to lead people to Christ outside of the church but I felt particularly impressed today to offer salvation in the service. And, um, and here's what I wanna do. I wanna take a moment, and if the live stream cuts off, we love y'all, but, but this is a really holy moment right now, and I just wanna encourage you that if you need salvation, and when I say salvation, I mean being born again. Born again. Maybe you've never been born again. Maybe you've had a new label on your life, but you've never been born again. If that's you, if that's you, I'm gonna ask you to do what I laugh at all the time. I want you to raise your hand right now. If you're in the room, you've never been born again, I want you to raise your hand because I really wanna pray. I wanna pray. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You can put your hands down. All right, I'm gonna pray. And as I pray, you don't have to repeat what I'm praying, but I just, as we pray, I just want you to, to, to if you raise your hand, to just pray, Lord, I need you, but I enfold my life today in you. Commit to the covenant. The same way you would enter a marriage, enter into covenant with him. Say, I do. So Yahweh, I pray right now, and y'all just pray with me if you didn't raise your hand, just pray with me. 
I pray right now over every person that raised their hand. Maybe people are watching this that, that feel this too. I pray over everybody that raised their hand, Lord, right now in this moment, I pray that you would put an end to the covenant that they were in before. And at the same time, simultaneously, I pray that they would hear and I do from you. That you desire them. You long for them. They would begin the process of living their life for you today. That because they are right now becoming the righteousness of God, right now in this moment, they have just traded their rags for a robe. Right now they are the righteousness of God. So because of that, because you now call them righteous and perfect, I pray that they would begin leveraging, and all of us would begin leveraging that identity into true transformation into the globe through holiness, that we would live set apart, that we would live fulfilling the law, having been fulfilled within us through Jesus. I pray that we would live in such a way that would cause the world to look at us, just like in Antioch, when they looked at those who believed in Jesus, they looked so different than the culture around them that they had to label them Christians to identify them as something other than. I pray that we would live so other than our culture that it would cause them to see us and let us be the standard by which everyone else refuses to live less than. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for bringing sons and daughters home right now. Sons and daughters have just been brought home. In your name, amen. Would y'all give the Lord a hand? Like people, people got saved, born again in this moment. So yeah.